Welcome, Austin, Jim, and Al. Uh, thought we'd uh, we're continuing our talk here today about the history of SPI and, and Jim's involvement in wargaming. Uh, one of the things that I'd like to ask you, Jim, is what did you think your best design was? Best single design? Yeah, single design or uh, design that carried over between games. Uh, hmm, carrying over between games. Well, we had the, uh, the France 40 system, which was, I think, first used for, uh, God, I think the Battle of Kursk, uh, which was suggested by Sterling Hart. I, he might have designed, designed it. I'll see if I got that down here in my, uh, my yeah, list of my yeah, designs. Sterling designed yeah, yeah, Sterling. And I said, use the France 40 system. And, um, the, uh, uh, that was a operational level divisions, you know, a type game system. And it worked pretty well. And we used it for, oh, three or four at least, you know, different games. Destruction of Army Group Center. Uh, I think maybe the uh, Drive on Moscow. In other words, most World War II <coughs> uh, division level uh, games or situations uh, fit with that system. Now the other system that 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 works in many games was the uh, the tactical systems we used with the uh, quadra games. These were the small games, simple games. And as I remember, we had a a somewhat a basic system, and there were major variations for each historical period. And so, and it, a lot most World War II and going into post World War II, like there we did at least one. Uh, Sinai uh, 73 war related game. I think that was the Battle of the Chinese Farm. And that was all amenable. And what we did was to make it easier on the uh, on the developers and the designers was we uh, we eventually uh, developed a rules master. Uh, I forget what year we actually did that. but uh, eventually, we had it when we started using uh, the uh, the, the mid PCs, first PCs in the late seventies. Uh, we had that on a, on a floppy disk, and you just you know you had master master rules, you know uh, whatever. And there was at least two or three versions, and the designer could just load a copy of that and uh, and start making modifications for his particular game. So yes, there was a lot of a system, as it were. Or pattern analysis, as I later called it, of the uh, the similarities in uh, in in many battles, and how you could basically use the um, uh, the, the framework for 80, 90 percent of your rules. It would save you a lot of rules writing. And of course, you knew if you were using the master, that was that was gone over with a fine tooth comb, especially by the art department, which handled editing of, of final copy. Um, and so you uh, you know you saved a lot of work for the uh, the uh, uh, the art department. What the hell was the guy's name we had there? We got him from a scientific publisher, um, and um, uh, he was very good. But he appreciated that. In fact, he might have been behind it for all I know. Damn it! I wish I I you know you might find those details in the old copies of uh, Outgoing Mail, each issue of S and T had a. Uh, Basically, a, a chatty, you know, update on what was how how we were doing, what we were doing, what we were planning on doing, et cetera, et cetera. But also included uh, little details like how we were developing rules. And this was done not just for our customers, but also for our competitors. <laughs> 
we we basically spawned a lot of competition deliberately, um, and uh, a lot of the uh, the guys from the other uh, firms would come by on visits. Uh, Game Designers Workshop, I believe. Yeah, they they came by. We got he I even have pictures to prove it. Uh, there was about half a dozen of them wandered in. And uh, we also had the military, the Army, the Marines, and uh, I don't think the Navy or the Air Force ever showed up. Um, but they, they basically came uh, loaded for bear, as it were. They were not just looking for insights, but, uh, you know, we were we told them, uh, you know, we will give you goodies, you know, games uh, to, to carry away with you that are uh, uh, that are appropriate to what your needs are. Um, and that. That evolved into a chapter, uh, a much expanded chapter in later editions of the War Games Handbook, which came out in, I think, 1980. Um, so, yes, we did have a lot of that recognizing patterns and, you know, using them uh, to make the work easier. Now, uh, that, I think, still applies. I think you'll still see a lot of that in many of the game, uh, the manual game publishers that are still publishing. There's still a lot of these games being published because it's a lot cheaper uh, to uh, to do the artwork, you, you do it online, as it were, not online, but you know, in uh, with Adobe or whatever. Um, and that has become a whole different history <laughs> after I left. Um, but it has kept the uh, hobby alive because these publishers are often not, you know, full time. Very few of them are, I don't believe. And but they can afford to uh, to create and uh, publish a game and and. Break even, but selling about 500 or, 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 or so copies, and after that, it's they're making a profit. Uh, so you know, this a lot of the concepts we <clears throat> encountered early on and basically uh, codified, uh, we passed on, and a lot of them are still alive and well out there in the uh, game design world. So one of the things that you guys did was you did a lot of contemporary games. Um, Things that hadn't happened yet, but could possibly happen in the near future. How did you go about researching that? Well, there's, there's a story uh, oft repeated in print in me verbally is that uh, we attracted a lot of customers. In fact, what we are uh, based upon our feedback results, we estimated about 20% of our customers were uh, government. In other words, military, State Department, uh, uh, CIA, etc. And uh, so one, I think this is in '72. When when did uh, when did the, the, the when did that first that game come out? Uh, not Combat Command, uh, da, 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 Red Star, White Star, 1972. Yeah. So it must have been in seven, early '72 or uh, or '71. Uh, we got a, I, I don't know if it was a letter, or, or, or probably it was a letter from the infantry school where a bunch of the uh, st students or no instructors down there said, why don't you do, we're big fans of your games, et cetera, et cetera, especially Panzer Blitz, and, <coughs> which we passed on to Avalon Hill. Uh, and, uh, you know, why don't you do one on a contemporary subject? So I said, yeah, we could do that, uh, but I need the following manuals. And I knew this because when I was in the service uh, with an artillery battalion, spent a year over in Korea. That's a story unto itself. But anyway, uh, 
when we were shipping over, they were they were basically throwing out a lot of field manuals, and a lot of them, I asked the, the first sergeant, I says, could I grab these? You're going to say, yeah, sure. They were all unclassified, but they were like the uh, field officers this, the field officers that, logistics and what have you. These were a gold mine. And uh, so I was somewhat aware of the, of the manuals, and of course, these guys were. And, uh, you know, within a week, there was a uh, there was a large uh, crate delivered, and <laughs> not a crate, but a large you know, box full of these manuals that they felt that I mentioned or they felt would be appropriate. And that got us started. And we did Red Star, White Star. Now, Red Star, White Star surprised everybody. Uh, it surprised us because it became an instant bestseller. We didn't know. I mean, that's one reason we did it. In fact, I, we probably did, ran the proposal and the feedback, and it probably scored very high. But we hadn't even thought of doing that because we were historical gamers. Um, but, you know, it, when they when the idea was first proposed by the infantry school fellows, I said, well, yeah, that makes sense. Why not? And uh, and every contemporary, just about every contemporary game after that uh, became basically our bestsellers. Our bestsellers were contemporary and future, not too future, but, you know, contemporary and future enough so that we could use, uh, you know, recent battles. Now, this includes not just World War II, but also Korea, uh, not so much Vietnam, although unless you wanted something on a regular warfare. Uh, and, of course, the Arab-Israeli wars, which we did games on as historical uh, games. And uh, it wasn't that difficult because, as I, as I summarized and pointed out later, as long as you don't project too far into the future, uh, you're safe. Now, one some cases we had to. I mean, Red Star, White Star uh, introduced the tow, which is still used, the uh, the the, uh, the uh, anti-tank guided missile, the wire guided anti-tank guided missile, and um, and they were they were somewhat you know surprised at that because that was a new thing, and they were just figuring out who to give it to, how to use it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we did some work for them. Basically, we took the current. Uh, 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 doctrine, as it were, how many uh, were available and how they were used, and we threw them in there, and we made a best estimate of uh, what they uh, what they could do. Now, the uh, a lot of information about how effective tow was in combat came during the 1973 war, the Arab-Israeli war. But before that, we only had what had been published in the trade journals, uh, which was often pretty good. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a a periodical which is still published called Aviation Week. <laughs> and back during the Cold War days, intelligence people used to call it Aviation Leak because uh, we later found, we later confirmed what everybody suspected, that the Russians were grabbing copies of uh, and sometimes seeking them out in diplomatic pouch. Uh, it's just sort of uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and they they discovered a lot of stuff uh, that they would have otherwise spent a lot of you know time, effort, and money on you know trying to steal from the source. But you know the that was the way it was done in the West, and that's one reason why we had the uh, technological advantage. But the uh, the uh, later on, I was told they were using uh, Red Star, White Star in the Pentagon, you know, for planning. And uh, one guy, one guy told me, he says, you know, we had a, we had some um, classified data on a new version of tow, and uh, we basically had to create, in effect, a classified version of Red Star, White Star, 
which had this 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 minor update, which didn't amount to a hell of a lot, but then they had these security rules which they had to follow. But it just goes to show that you uh, you don't have to uh, you know uh, make many adjustments to do an effective and realistic uh, contemporary game, and this is still being done. I mean, this came out, for example, during the 1991 war. By then, by the late 80s, early 90s, uh, there were a lot of officers who had, uh, like these young officers, instructors down at the infantry school, had risen up through the ranks. And the the guys who caught on to it, like the guys I was talking to, were probably generals uh, by the time the the Gulf War came along. And they appreciated war games. They would tell the war stories, as it were, about Red Star, White Star – and so on and so forth, and how effective it was. So at that point, it was actually being used, and sometimes it got mentioned uh, in the in the media stories. Uh, the guy says, "We war game this, you know, a dozen times, and blah blah blah." And so we weren't too, you know, we weren't we weren't too surprised that it, that it worked. And it carried even in the two uh, two thousand three, the invasion of Iraq. I think there was one story where the guy said, "Yeah, there was this one this one area we had to pass through." And uh, the last dozen times I tried it, I was in this in the in the war game, and I kept getting killed. But this time, I guess I must have learned something because I, I we won, we survived, and we got through it. Uh, and that just shows you the how should I put it the the uh, unrecognized uh, impact of war games when they when they present officers with a, a difficult tactical situation. And even though they you know, they're, they're willing to try anything because if they're dead, they're not really dead. You know, their idea is dead. So try something different. And so when this guy encountered this uh, this ambush situation at a, uh, at a at bridge, I forget what town it was, um, he instinctively, you know, deployed his forces in such a way that it would, it would get around all the mistakes he had made earlier in the simulation that didn't work. And bingo, he blasted his way right through. Um, and uh, a lot of officers even mentioned that the, their, their previous wargaming of situations like this uh, encouraged by the the uh, success of it in the 1991 uh, hundred hour war uh, to chase the Iraqis out of Kuwait, uh, <coughs> continued to pay dividends, and it still does. Uh, I mean, for example, one of the things I think we we uh, mentioned in the strategy page uh, during the uh, uh, the height of the fighting in Iraq was how they developed a uh, a, a a small little booklet for convoy commanders and giving them a checklist. And this is an offshoot of war games, you know. Uh, basically, uh, it gives you all the things you got to check for and watch for that will avoid your guys getting caught and getting killed. And it was very successful. And you didn't have to be a war gamer to use it. It simply says you got this, you got that. You know, the old checklist thing in the, uh, the medical profession that rediscovered checklists, which aviation has been using for decades. Uh, I forget when, 70s or 80s and whatever, because a lot of the mistakes being made during surgery was because seven, we got this, we got that, blah, 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 blah. Um, and uh, they, they found that something, somebody came up with the idea, well, just use a checklist like they do before they take off on an airplane. I mean, we're operating on somebody. Uh, let's do it. And I recently had some eye surgery, which I put off for a long time, and I was under, you know, semi-sedated. And I could hear the doctor and the nurses going through the checklist before they actually started. So it's alive and well, and the operation's a great success. I don't wear glasses anymore. Um, and... Uh, uh, these are ideas that basically come from dealing with reality in a, in a situation where you can change the approach. You can try something, you know, potentially fatal, 
not just surgery, but you know, a military a situation or any kind of situation. That's why these uh, these uh, what we call them we call them conflict simulations. Actually, trying to be accurate, not just trying to be PC, uh, because that could be applied to anything. And there's a lot of you know businesses use marketing games, management games, and what have you. And we actually discuss this, in, or I discuss it in outgoing mail. You know, I jokingly referred to the SBI game, which I used to manage. I really didn't, although probably I did unconsciously. Uh, of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the all the people we had working there, I called it herding cats because they were all very creative, independent-minded. We encouraged that, but at some at some cases, you know, it could get out of control, and you had to know how to rein it in without squashing, you know, the person who's trying to do their best. So these are ideas and concepts which we pioneered applying on a large scale while I was at SBI I think we published like 500 games about 20% of them I designed myself and towards the end I was only the designer of last resort in fact one of my one of my favorite games was uh where is it I got the list in front of me the year uh 1975 I think it was uh the battle for Germany where the hell is it the uh oops it's a long list uh, 75, 75, 75, uh, Invasion of America. Uh, that bit low we were publishing. I was designing a lot of games. Anyway, Battle for Germany uh, was done uh, because the guy who was uh, designing the game for the, the next issue of, of uh, S&T had run into basically terminal problems, and we couldn't proceed with his particular game. I forget what the game was. I forget who the designer was. So I said, look, I can. I, I got. I had an idea cooking, uh, rolling around in my head, which I haven't really followed up on. Um, uh, give me overnight, and I'll, I'll see if I can do it. And it was a challenge. Can I do a game from like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m.? And I did. I even typed up the first draft of the rules. I, I uh, we had a a, uh, a setup back in the art department where you could use a put a map on the light table and and put a blank hex sheet over it, and you could basically do a quick you know dirty uh, map. And um, the uh, uh, that was an example. I mentioned that now going mail, and just you know to make clear to people that it's important if you are familiar with the games and if you've designed a few. And you have an idea, it pays just to go in there and boom, get a first prototype out there as soon as possible. Uh, yeah, 1975, Battle for Germany. And uh, the 12-hour game. Uh, and it's not something you can do, you know, as a, you know, just to show off. But it goes to show you what you can do if you're up against the wall, as it were, and you have no choice. As the old saying goes, heroes are cowards that got cornered. Um, uh, working under pressure. But I was fairly confident I could do it. Because a lot of the designs I came with were done like in in a day, uh, you know, or a couple of days. You know, I'd walk around. You know, I, and people say, well, "Why are you always out going through these long walks, smoking cigars?" And I said, "Well, helps me think." Um, and uh, and it later became a a fact, sort of we speak that that people are more creative when they're on their feet and walking around rather than sitting down. So, you know, you know I, in fact, sometimes I would do a lot of the, the whole game standing up because the, the, the prototype map, you had to be standing up over the light table. Or I, I told people, you could just use it, get a bright uh, day, sunlight, and then use the window for a light table, put a map up, and then have a hex sheet over it so it'll show through and bingo, or you're off. Um, 
uh, so you know these were all ideas that came from you know basically common sense, which is what you know what, what we found later found out was operations research developed during World War II or before World War II by the British operational research they called it, which is simply using common sense applied to uh, real life uh, situations. And of course, you had a lot of real life. And death situations in World War II, and the operations research uh, led to a lot of, uh, you know, innovations in aerial and uh, and naval anti-submarine warfare, uh, which were game-changing, so to speak. You know, they, they made an enormous impact, um, and we simply applied these to, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, recreating history. And, and of course, we found out that yes, uh, you also had a window to recreate the future. You know, up to a point, you couldn't get you. The further further forward you went, uh, the more likely you were to be wrong. But we never really made that mistake in any of our future games. Uh, they were basically done by using the uh, the historical examples we were basing it on as the test, and. Uh, uh, it worked, and we we basically used it, you know, right up to the end, and it's still being used widely uh, throughout the, I think, the simulation world in general. You know, games, the, mo- the most popular war games now are computerized, and they tend to be first-person shooters. But even those uh, realize, those designers realize that verisimilitude, realism, is very important. And a lot of times they will basically uh, bring in military veterans or in many cases uh, they, they got people from these special forces, SOCOM, who are willing to do it because then they had permission to walk away. In fact, they, they would get a, a copy of the code, as it were, um, and with permission to, uh, to develop a classified version, which obviously wouldn't be sold. <laughs> so they had, uh, they had their own programmers and what have you, or as many of these games did, they had a, uh, a uh, well, they first called it a level creator, but it was later a scenario uh, a creator, a scenario creation, you know, um, utility. And these became very popular and almost standard. You really couldn't publish a game, many of the uh, modern, you know, action games, as they call them, uh, without a, uh, a scenario, uh, you know, generator, as it were, or, or you know, editor. Um, and uh, these basically provide a lot of feedback to the publisher, showing them what they could have done, but they didn't. Because, you know, it took one of their, their customers to come up with it first. And we recognize that. And we encourage people to basically send us uh, ideas for improvements even after a game is published. In fact, that led to a whole other magazine called Boobs, which specialized in publishing articles uh, either by staff or mostly by uh, uh, contributors, uh, the gamers, who had come up with a better idea. And uh, a lot of these ideas were codified and and made available as uh, as official, you know, addendums uh, to existing games. Uh, so, you know, again, these are ideas which have apparently existed for thousands of years, but they'd never liked most knowledge uh, until it got codified and written down where it could be easily reused, uh, which is the beautiful thing about Gutenberg and, you know, mass literacy. Uh, you suddenly had, you know, the, uh, the crowdsourcing, as they call it now, and uh, you can basically get a lot more done 
because there's this huge collection of existing uh, knowledge which is accessible, and uh, and all you do is tweak. And that's what I said early on to people who said, well, how do I design a war game? I said, well, first you become proficient in playing it. It helps if you're enthusiastic. Uh, this was only – we calculated only a few percent of the population had the over like, you know, the old Venn diagram uh, were uh, – Historically, historically curious, you know, history fans, as it were, the people who buy all those books. But if you, in addition, had a sense of, well, you, I, I termed it as you're not afraid of math and probability. You didn't have to be a, a math genius, but my God, we had a lot of guys in the, showing up for the playtesting who were math majors or science majors, as it were, um, and uh, including a lot of lawyers. I guess that counts. And uh, they uh, they were a, a small segment of the population, maybe two, three, four percent. Um, and plus, when you add in the computerized games, which made them more accessible, it probably goes up to five, maybe even 10 percent. It's hard to say these days. Um, but uh, they were the audience for this sort of thing because they they felt it was useful. They were comfortable with it. They enjoyed it. Uh, it was basically a way to uh, use solve mysteries, as, as one guy put it. Uh, in fact, <laughs> we had focus groups where we bring in a random uh, number of uh, local gamers from our list. We, you know, offer them a free game and, and a free lunch, as it were. They come into our focus group, and I'll never forget this one guy. He was a he was a doctor, and I asked him, "Well, how do you have time to play games?" You know, uh, he says, "Well, you know, I don't really uh, like like the your survey show, uh, but when I get a new game." I just look at it. It's, that it's a different way of looking at information. It's much more accessible if you're analyzing. And I, I felt a kinship with this guy because I did the same thing. I was never a big fan of playing the games. I, I enjoyed developing the concepts and designing them. Then I have to play test them, you know, initially anyway, just to see if that thing works at all. Um, and uh, that was it turned out to be, according to our, sur- our regular surveys, every issue, uh, one of the major attractions of the games, and it probably still is. And I told people in the military, uh, this is caught on in the late 70s, I think it was. It became a big deal in, in, the, in the military circles about you know, using this type of gaming. Um, and I said before an audience of, of the assembled you know, military you know, gaming community, as, or war game development community, uh, the Beltway Bandits, as it were, but also some military people doing it, I says – Ultimately, you want a game that commanders can play in private. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a it's a cultural thing, uh, worse in some cultures than in others. But you don't really want to make your mistakes in front of a, a audience of your peers. Uh, but uh, now that changed over the years as more war gamers rose up in the ranks and said, you know, hey, there's nothing wrong with screwing up on a war game. It's going to save your butt, you know, uh, in the real thing, which later proved to be the case. So it's now taken as dogma. Yeah, you can do that. But back in the old days, I said, ideally, you want a game that a general officer, you know, a higher ranking officer can sit down at home on a computer, easy to play and, you know, make his mistakes, but also develop plans that work. Uh, and actually, we did this during uh, outside of the wargaming industry uh, during the mid '80s. I was out by then, but I was I was I got roped in for projects, and one of them was Ray Macedonia, the uh, guy who was put in charge of, of resurrecting military wargaming at the Army War College. He gave me a you know an unexpected phone call in mid '70s and said, "Hey, I'm Ray Macedonia." And he explained what he wanted to do, and I said, "Yeah, I'll come down." 
and I started making regular visits down there. But it be it worked, and uh, he uh, understood uh, that if people can play them and learn from these uh, from these uh, near future uh, situations, uh, they will not only uh, refine the situation, uh, but they will also gather insights. So when he called me into when he retired, he was working for I forget what the Bellwood Band, not that the manufacturer was up in up in uh, New England, but anyway, they were developing these uh, sat arm. These were uh, Af- Afco, wasn't it? Afco, Afco right? They're now part of something else, but anyway, the uh, sat arm was a, a a late Cold War uh, weapon, which was a, a an artillery shell with two of these sat arm sub munitions. Now these things were were released and fired. It was like time on target, as it were. Uh, uh, the the uh, the you set the fuse so it would uh, activate, as it were, when it was uh, at a certain position. And these two sat arm uh, 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 rounds, as it were, uh, munitions would uh, separate, and they would. Uh, I think they they basically slowed their ascent by having some sort of spinning thing. You know, in the rear, they didn't use a parachute. But anyway, they'd gotten all those details, you know, sorted. And uh, but what they weren't uh, certain of was what the Russians would do. So they basically called in a guy using uh, I forget what it was, but it was the equivalent of a of a early model. Yeah, should I put it, a a a, a Twenty eighty six. Anyway, the four eighty six. Yeah, the the four eighty six. The the PC plus whatever it was called back in those days, the mid eighties. It was a powerful machine, but he was using uh, was it Lisp? Anyway, one of the languages that had been created uh, for creating you know simulations for the scientific community. So I sat next to him. I wrote him up a an outline. This was a tactical game, and we had to include things like. How the Russian, the Russian, uh, the Russian doctrine as practical doctrine, if they encountered these things, how they would react, what they would do. Uh, I don't know if they actually ran the field test. I asked. I think they might have. In other words, when these things land, they will. They will. One version of them was not just attacking as they were coming down. They, they, the sensor would look for armored vehicles and then attack from the top with this thin armor. And they were, they were pretty effective. They tested that. But they also had a version that would basically land and just sit there waiting. You know, they have a seismic sensor. When it landed, the seismic sensor would poke into the ground, and it could sense the rumble, as it were, of heavy vehicles approaching. Uh, dead giveaway that there's tanks or whatever coming your way. And it would basically pop up, uh, so, you know, being dropped uh, from a uh, from an artillery shell. It would pop up and then come down, and it would do the search, use those sensors, and and uh, look for a target. So we set up the simulation, and uh, and we found out that it worked. I mean, the Russians would at the very least be slowed down. The best they could do was uh, send troops out there to beat, literally beat the bushes, looking for these things. And and they, I think they to, to uh, make that more difficult, they added a couple of uh, um, explosive devices, little mines, as it were, that popped out with it. Uh, that if they if they if they got too close, you know, if they tried to lay hands on it or whatever, it would blow up blow up in their thing in their faces. So even the Russians have to recognize the futility of doing that. Uh, and so basically, they had to find them back away, open fire with their AK-47s, and, and destroy it or damage it to the point where it wouldn't work anymore. And they keep looking for more. But the thing, and this this met the the criteria for the system. It was meant to slow down a Russian advance. 
this is exactly what they did because we're popping these things in, you know, with artillery, the landing version of sidearm. Um, and later we found out we could do it with rockets. The uh, the MLRS was coming out about that time, or drop them from the air. Um, and uh, and this this basically cinched the deal, as where he says, yeah, this would be effective. Fortunately, uh, or unfortunately, uh, for AFCO, uh, the Cold War ended a few years after this thing became available. And I think it was resurrected uh, later on, but the technology had passed it by. I mean, it was a great idea. It worked, uh, but it, it got halted because peace broke out in 91. And with, by the end of the 90s, peace had war, the threat of war had returned. Uh, and, and I think some of them were used in the, in the Gulf War. Um, but basically, we were the ones that were advancing, <laughs> not the Iraqis. And so we never had to face an overwhelming attacking force, which had to be slowed down. Um, and uh, and so that itself in itself rendered, you know, the the sad arm, you know, uh, much less useful. Um, but again, these are the ideas, the, the way games or simulations uh, or serious games, they call them now, these non-military simulations uh, are still applicable. And again, using the rules that we basically codified. So that's why we, SBI, always gets so much credit because we had so many firsts to our credit. Uh, and they say, well, where did that come from? They say, oh, SBI did it in such and such. When you do 500 games in, you know, about 11, 12 years, uh, you're going to be laying a lot of IP, intellectual property out there, new ideas. A lot of it's recycled stuff, like Dan was asking about with game systems where you recycle. But even with each, with each recycling of the, uh, you know, the World War II operational level, you know, uh, the uh, France 1940 system, um, there were minor changes. Like Austin was mentioning before we went on the air, uh, I, I included a rule in one of my bulge games where the uh, if you had artillery close enough, an artillery unit close enough to a a a a a, uh, a crossing, a, either a um, either a, a ford or a, a still intact bridge or a temporary bridge the Germans had put up, if you could keep firing uh, uh, air, you know, at time on target shells that would explode in the air, uh, they would basically interdict or stop or block that route for the Germans because while it wouldn't stop the tanks, it would stop all the fuel vehicles, supply vehicles, a lot of the troop transports, which were just trucks. Um, and it worked. And we knew it worked because we'd used it before. Uh, and we used it as early as Normandy and probably in North Africa even. Uh, we passed the technology on to the, the, the British. Um, and uh, so this was another example of an idea which has to be incorporated into a historical game to make it work. And and finding out little details like that was not difficult because when you look at when you look to simulate a, a battle or a situation, you have to go through and look at well what are the key factors. For example, when we were doing uh, North Africa uh, you know operation level games, uh, we said, well why are the British always slower off the mark? Than the Germans, and we found out it was basically you know training and tactics, and we basically had to include a rule for the British, you know the random you know uh, the random leadership failure rule, which was basically the problem the British had. The Germans never hesitated. Their doctrine said, "When in doubt, do something," and this always put their opponent off balance. 
you know, all the other uh, the the Russians the, and the and the British and and even the Americans to a certain ex- to a large extent um, would hesitate if they ran into something. The Germans would not. And while this seemed like a, a, a costly and even suicidal approach, it wasn't because they were using it against opponents that they knew would, uh, at the very least, uh, you know, not be prepared to deal with a sudden attack. Although later in the war, late in the war, it was understood that if you uh, grabbed the position or you had the initiative, uh, expect a German counterattack. And this somewhat diminished the effectiveness of it, but it also slowed us down because uh, after after you did something that had a success, uh, you basically had to limit it just to face the, in, the inevitable counterattack. This is when sometimes it costs us big time. The invasion, the uh, the the the, uh, the Anzio landing, which was meant to get around the Germans to cop, cop, uh, capture Rome early by landing behind their lines. Initially, it was successful. The general commanding, who was later relieved, uh, uh, found out that his they, they they were moving too fast. He thought they were moving too fast, you know, against uh, the meager Italian or German opposition. And he said, "They're going to counterattack. They're going to catch us, and what have you." And of course, the correct answer was, "Well, wait until that happens." You got overwhelming force coming across the beach. You know what the Germans have in the area or what in the region, as it were. You know how long it's going to take them to get into reinforcements. You have air superiority, even with fog and what have you. You can get down there and you can get a sense, a better sense of uh, of what's on the ground than the Germans can. But the Germans were simply responding. And by the time the Germans did counterattack, they had too much, uh, too many troops. Uh, and uh, it's, it's no longer possible to us to, to make the advance we should have made. So there's an example of how it can basically, you know, uh, you know, uh, work against you. But again, there's an idea. Uh, there's a, uh, an example of how you have to basically dig in to the history. And this is and, and you need serious history. Popular histories don't often cover this. That's why the Army Green Books, the official histories of World War Two, they were coming out in the 60s and 70s, finally. Um, and they were a gold mine because they were they were basically the uh, the gold standard, as it were, for what actually happened, because it was written by usually by combat officers or, or, or with the cooperation of combat officers who basically could answer the the uh, questions from the researchers or the writers. And so well, what actually did this? What actually did that? And again, we passed that information on to our um, our audience, as it were, and to the people told the military, I says, you know, you've got a gold mine here. You're creating all the tools you need. You just didn't know how to put them together. Well, they learned very quickly. I mean, I was a bit harsh initially. I said, look, you dummies can do this yourself. And they looked at me aghast. And I says, no, you can. And uh, it didn't take long to pick up on that. And I realized it would take a long time because there was a lot of initial resistance uh, to this, you know, you have toys, you're going to play with games. Um, but like by, by 1990, 1991, uh, the people in charge had basically experienced it uh, when they were younger. And it was no longer, you know, uh, just toys. It was a, 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 uh, an essential tool in, uh, in winning. And winning big. In fact, the, the uh, term they used after the Vietnam War, when they started their their um, their reforms, was to fight the first battle and win. Because previous to that, the American army, like so many other countries, including Russia, uh, were not prepared 
to to basically realistically fight the first battle. And of course, the army that was better prepared to fight the first battle, like in World War One, where the Germans almost took Paris in 1914, um, and in uh, World War Two, where again France was defeated because the Germans had war gamed out their initial moves and and what the what the French or the British or whatever could do. And of course, in Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia, where the where the where the Russians basically shot themselves in the foot. Uh, uh, by basically getting clobbered by the Finns in 1940 and misinterpreting the results, or Stalin didn't like the results. He had analysts, they had war gamers, as it were, who pointed out to him, you know, what were the, what the mistakes were being, what he had to do, and he didn't move fast enough. And that speed is an essential factor, not just in fighting, but in thinking, uh, coming up with solutions. And uh, that lesson was driven home to a lot of commanders during World War II, but it didn't become institutionalized in the military. So one thing Ray, Ray Macedonia was trying to do, and he accomplished to a large degree at the War College and throughout the military, was to institutionalize you know, the, the prior experience. In fact, they, they established in, I think, the 80s, the Center for Army Lessons Learned, which initially you know, didn't use uh, you know, the Internet, which now it does. And you had there was some, it wasn't top secret, but basically you had to have clearance to get in there. But basically any spy with their salt hacker with their salt could get in there. But it was nothing more than stuff that you learn from the history book. Um, it was all the lessons learned. And I got that idea when I was researching. Uh, I think it was my one of my early games with Apple Hill. No, it was my own first college game. And I was down at the World War II Records Branch, which closed up. You know, in the mid '60s or something like that, and they had all these World War II records, and they had a lot of uh, British expert people who were acting as a protocol. Some, uh, you know, Central Army lessons learned. They got calls from historians, you know, people writing books or whatever. Anybody could call in, and anybody, anybody could visit. I got to visit, but I was—they was literally going through the, the filing cabinets uh, of documents, and one thing I found were uh, bulletins, intelligence bulletins. Distributed on a daily or weekly or as needed basis uh, during the uh, during uh, the Battle for France and Germany in, in 1944, and there were probably earlier. I only had the ones from 44. Uh, basically, warning commanders of tactics that Germans were using and things they had to do to avoid them. And these were apparently very life saving, but not everybody not everybody uh, made access them or, or played it, paid attention to them. Um, I mean, the classic example of this mistake was during the Korean War. Uh, MacArthur simply took it as a given that the Chinese would not intervene. And even when he had evidence to the contrary, he says, no, that's, that's, that's just an aberration. And boom, you know, we lost a lot of guys, you know, when the Chinese did hit and they hit hard and drove us all the way, you know, from central uh, North Vietnam all the way back to what is now the demilitarized zone or, or further back. Um, so these are lessons that are eternal. Um, and if, if you see any modern uh, military, de- contemporary military defeat or future military defeat, you'll find that a large element will be ignoring the past. It, as the old saying goes, it just doesn't repeat itself, but it paraphrases itself very well. Yeah. Um, and this is what war games let you do. So one of the uh, systems that SPI did that was very popular was, and I don't know how to say the name, is it pre-stags or press-stags? Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you a lot about that, because he was one of the, he was one of the prime, him and Steve Patrick uh, were the big fans of that, and I said, yeah, that's a great idea. Al, why don't you, uh, why don't you 
explain how that uh, that came about and turned no, I out. Can't, I can't even remember what the what the uh, pre prehistoric pre modern history. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. I yeah, forget what yeah, it's yeah, that. Right. Anyway. I think it was pre-modern historical uh, tactical games. Yeah, basically Chariot, Spartan, Legion, Viking, and right, Yeoman. Right. You know the pre-gunpowder, pre-gunpowder yeah, games. Pre-gunpowder games. Yeah. The um, uh, well, the games you mentioned were mostly remakes of earlier games. Right. Like like uh, um, Renaissance of Infantry. Right. And uh, Centurion. Was it Centurion? Centurion. I don't remember. Yeah. Or Legion. What but we what did, we were trying to do was was let's let's get one basic set of rules, uh, you know that are that are useful for all of these periods. You know, let's face it, you know, guy, guy, guy walking along with a spear in in 2000 BC is is not going to be fighting much more differently than a guy walking around with a spear in in the year 1100, you know. Right. Um. So if we can come up with a system that reflects the nature of tactics with a few extra rules from time to time, you know, like, you know, the Carthaginians are going to have to drag in elephants and whatnot. Um, so um, the games ended up being remade this way. And if you look carefully, uh, comparing the originals to the, the remakes, uh, I think you'll find that uh, – uh, there are considerable differences, but there are also enormous similarities. Yeah. In fact, I remember the, one of the questions that kept coming up that, 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 that triggered this, and that was people saying, well, what if the Roman legion had to fight a Viking army? Or yes. as, you know, was that, you know, what if the Zulu, what if a Zulu, you know, MP, you know, army, uh, one of the more disciplined, you know, African uh, group, is the colonials had to run against uh, What happened if they ran across, you know, uh, you know, uh, a Greek, uh, you know, phalanx, <laughs> and these, 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 these sound silly, but you know, basically they got to the heart of the matter. These are all similar, successful military systems using often similar weapons, um, and so what what makes them different? What makes one superior to the other? And it turns out it depends, <laughs> uh, yeah. because the, the Roman legion did encounter the phalanx. Uh, they did encounter the the cataf- well the the basically the hor- the horse archer uh, the uh, the Persian horse archer who were now these guys were formidable. This is something most people don't even realize to this day. Before stirrups, and at the time of the Roman legion, or actually earlier than that, the Persians had developed a military system that had guys armored with armored troops on horses. The horses were armored. They were, these guys were wearing plate armor, not the chain mail and what have you. Mm. And their weapons, the, the Greeks later adopted this as their cataphracts, which were, you know, basically a hundred percent, you know, ripoff, but they worked for the reach too. And their weapons were a, a, a recurved bow. This is the bow the Bongols, uh, uh, used. It was less wieldy, uh, unwieldy to handle, uh, and it was necessary for a horseman to uh, accurately, you know, effectively use it, and basically it didn't it didn't take up as much space. It still took a lot of pull, but really, actually, not as much as a crossbow. It was the physics of, of the of the of the bow, and it allowed you allowed it allowed horse archers basically to develop develop what hadn't been hadn't been was later never seen until you know repeating rifles came along, uh, enormous firepower. Uh, from a distance against, you know, Romans, you know, hoplites, you know, whatever. 
anybody who didn't have these. Arrows were always a problem for armies that were based upon infantry like the Romans. The Romans had a tactic that Tessudo were, you know, they form a square as it were. Guys in front would put their shields down. The guys behind would put the shields up and you'd have like this armored box of shields. But these were not proof against the uh, the high-powered, uh, you know, um, uh, recurve bow arrows. Now, the, the Persians not only had this, but these, each of these, these warriors, these Persian knights, as it were, had their bow, but they also had a, um, a shield and a spear, uh, and a sword. And, uh, I think the Greeks later used a darts, you know, very deadly darts, as it were, as well. They carried, they, they were very well kitted out. One reason they needed a horse, uh, to, to schlep all this stuff around, but they proved pretty nigh invulnerable. It wasn't until the, the Mongols showed up, and I don't know if, I, I guess they were still using it, but uh, the Mongols, like the Arabs, who who, uh, who overran uh, Iran in the uh, in the initial, uh, you know, outburst of, of Islamic, you know, uh, armies, uh, they caught the uh, the Persians in the middle of one of the perennial civil wars. It's one reason the Persians were such formidable fighters was they got plenty of practice. When there was nobody else to fight, they'd fight each other. Um, but this made them unstable. If they were in the midst of one of their civil wars, uh, they were vulnerable to a, an organized attack, and that's what hit them, you know, in the uh, in the seventh uh, century, sixth century. Uh, but the uh, when the Romans tried it, uh, they, you know, one of the great what ifs of history is uh, Caesar, when he was uh, when he was assassinated in the Senate, that was going to be his last meeting with the Senate. Well, not. Last as in terms of being stabbed to death, but he was he already issued orders to assemble fifteen divisions in Syria. He was going to take on the Parthians, and we'll never know if that would have worked because the Romans never were able to uh, to you know conquer or defeat decisively uh, the Persians. And eventually, they the best they could do was establish a um, a sort of a, a a a ceasefire, as it were. Uh, but Caesar was was uh, planning to do it, and, and he had talked about some of his tactics and some of his strategies that were going to nullify the advantages of the uh, of the Persian uh, armored warriors. Um, and we'll never know if those would have worked because a we don't know exactly the details. He only mentioned it in you know to, in comments to others uh, before he was killed. Um, but some general, a, a general of his caliber, he was very innovative, very practical. And that's why he got so far. But he was also very forgiving of his enemies, which you know allowed a bunch of them to get together in, in the Senate and stab him today. Uh, but the um, uh, that's one of the great what ifs. That's one reason why we did the uh, the press tags. I don't forget what the results were. You know, if you if you uh, pitted a, a Parthian army, a Persian army, you know, against a a, a Roman legion. Uh, I should remember that, but I don't. Not in fact, maybe we never addressed it because there were. Too many unknowns. Nobody had actually done it. Right. Uh, but that's one of the great things about wargaming is the what if. And a lot yes. of people play them because of the what if. Um, Dan, Dan, let me a add something there that's okay. kind of funny. Uh, I remember at one of the uh, play tests that I, uh, I went to, I forget which game. Yeah, it may have been Dallas, Jim, that I yeah. was there You know, when we were working on that. And one of the play testers was talking to another one about, and this is the way I remember it, wars at the end of time, where you would have pitted, you know, Mamluks against a uh, uh, Mongols, even though you could say yeah. that they actually came off. It was, I think it was, uh, uh, 
Angelut. Uh, uh, and Al, you and I talked about this, and you you chuckled and said, "Oh, that's something we talked about when working on some of these uh, uh, games yeah. of a uh, of a uh, swords and 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 spear area warfare." I don't know if you remember that, but I remember yeah. chuckling chuckling about it. Uh, yeah, wars at the end of time. Well, let, let me add one other other thing too. I remembered what it was when I broke in and said it was uh, Avco. It was Textron, Textron Systems really. Division. Yeah, but I think Avco Systems was actually a subsidiary that Ray Macedonia had evolved from Colonel Macedonia into Doctor Macedonia, which he already yeah. was, and was uh, head chief of scientist. that. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what his, 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 it was. You're right. He was chief scientist. And what we worked on was something called the Wide Area Mine. That was right, the that name was, yeah. of it. It right. even got named Hornet, and they went into pre-production with it. And here's why I remember it. I There was still a little clip that Textron had made uh, of some of their tests of this munition that was on the web uh, early, early two th- uh, 2000s because I remember seeing it and – and, and looking at it, and this 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 weapon had a seismic sensor and an acoustic system, right. uh, sensor on it, and uh, I I did about four maybe five reserve tours at the War College, working on war games for uh, Colonel Macedonia. I was doing it as Lieutenant Captain ba- uh, Captain Bay. I was mid Captain. Jim has helped help help set that up. And actually, the roots of that system came back in, a, in an analysis that that Ray wanted done of what was called the Lurzer, L-O with an umlaut, S-E-R, Loser was the joke, def- alternative defense of West Germany using light infantry up front. It just wouldn't work unless you had, and what I suggested to Dr. Mas- Colonel Macedonia was walking, talking mines. Ray comes back and he hires Jim and drags me along on this. And here are the walking, talking minds. They don't walk, but they're they're robots. And the game that Jim came up with had Russian attack formations coming through these, uh, well, ideas of minds because Ray kept uh, fiddling with them and his engineers coming up with little little twerk. Uh, you know, tw- uh, twitches and twerks to uh, improve it, and it was all done inside the, the inside the game, inside the computer before they actually went, built them, and started testing them outside. There's that's the applicability of a kind of a wall ga- a war game that can be tweaked. Anyway, I just so Jim, one thing. Go ahead, Al. Um, the um, the idea of pitting you know, like the Roman Legion against the Zulu Olympia and whatnot. In the course of designing, uh, was it a frigate? Yeah. I think, uh, no, it was, uh, it was, um, Dreadnought. In the course of designing Dreadnought, I believe there was a, uh, an HMS Victory counter created. Remember that? Yeah, that was a pre-Dreadnought. No, no, the, we had the, you know, some, someone figured oh, out what the, the victory yeah, would be I, like, I, Nelson's I, victory. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course, it turns out that it would have been very effective against a destroyer. On the other hand, it would have had gotten one one bite maybe out of battleship, and then it went over. You know? yeah. 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 So, Jim, uh, as we wrap up here, I have one last question for you today. 
Is there a game that you wish you had not been, that you had not designed or that you'd rather not have seen uh, publication? No. Uh, all the games were basically uh, experiments. Um, you know, some of the games, I mean, and, and in fact, all five of the six games published in Strategy and Tactics, the bi-monthly game magazine every year, were strictly, you know, according to the feedback results. We proposed, put game proposals out there, and the ones that scored the highest, and this was very effective, very accurate, as it were, in determining, you know, the popularity and saleability of the games. But once a year, we have what they call Editor's Choice, and I got to choose whatever the hell I wanted. And two of them were particularly noted as unpopular, but they were actually quite successful. One was Scrimmage, a football, tactical football game, <laughs> which with the, the technology we developed there was later used in all the computerized games. Uh, but doing it manually was a bit of a chore. But uh, we got letters from very grateful coaches. They said, yeah, this is great. I use it you know, to basically test my, my different formations and different ta- tactics or whatever they call them in football. And the other one was the plot to assassinate Hitler. Which was a basically a, a, a military, uh, you know, uh, political game. I we did a number of those. Uh, Chicago, Chicago in 1971. That was about the Chicago ruckus out uh, that led to the Chicago Seven trial. And when I was up at Columbia, we had the uh, you know the the uprising, as it were, the occupation of the uh, shutdown of the school in 1968. I guess it was. Uh, and they asked me to do a game. I did a game called Up Against the Wall, Motherfucker, and it was very successful. I mean, not just for the uh, the uh, playful title, which was my only requirement for doing the game. It was a freebie. Um, uh, but it was very accurate, and it impressed a lot of people like Columbia at the time, uh, who at yeah, first thought it was a joke, but then they sat down and played it and said, hey, you know, this is pretty, you know, pretty true to the actual situation, even though it might seem ludicrous, which said something about the situation. Um, so... Uh, no game idea was wasted. I did, I don't think we did, ever did any game uh, that you can call a complete waste of time. Some were more successful commercially than others. Some were more successful design wise than others. Uh, but none were you know totally without merit. And we basically again the feedback you know uh, kept us honest. Even even with the editor's choice, there were games done. With what the users wanted in mind. Now, the scrimmage was simply something. Not enough guys were, you know, sports fans, uh, or if they were, they weren't willing really to do that much work to just to do one, you know, go, go one. What do you call it? One play uh, in football. Uh, plot to assassinate Hitler. Uh, you know, people joke about the plot to assassinate Hitler, but nobody really wanted to play a game around it. But you know, if you're if you're planning on overthrowing a government, you know, it has its uh, virtues. Yeah, I think plot. To assassinate Hitler now after the movie Valkyrie uh, would have a different reception. Mm. In fact, I think yeah. it would be great to do it as a solo game. Um, mm. And because uh, you did it actually as a two player game, I believe. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, like Wolfpack and Operation Olympic, uh, they were they were games where the one side it's it's moves were pretty much you know preordained by doctrine or custom or whatever, and they both want basically to have a truly solitaire game. There were a number of situations that lent themselves to that. And we again we availed ourselves. Some were successful, some were not. Uh, but that's why I say nothing was wasted. 
Okay. Well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, we'll wrap up uh, just as a teaser for the next time we do this in a month. We've had a long break from talking about the uh, wargaming history uh, for various reasons. But uh, in a month from now, we're going to do um, an episode on one of the games we haven't talked about, Empires of the Middle Ages, wow. which was a very oh, popular yes. game. And oh, we're, yes. Yeah, <laughs> oh, and, yes. And then we're going to talk about how that transitioned into a, a multiplayer game called The Hundred Years' War. So that's right. what we'll be talking about next okay. time. Bye. All right. Okay, good. Well, then. See y'all. Bye, Bye, guys. Bye. All right.